0: Welcome to the RSP cast. Mark Schofield, Matt Waldman, we're here with you for week 14. Week 14, oh my god. I know, I know. It's like, it it, it flies and it drags all at the same time. You it's know? the weirdest
1: thing. Like, once the season goes, it just rolls downhill, right? Like, you get into the routine. It flies by, but it's, a like you said, it's this weird, like, super warp speed event that moves at a marathon slog. It's, I don't know how to describe it, but we are here, Matt, I got to tell you last night, Monday night football was a religious experience for me because watching new England and bill Belichick run the ball like 50 times and just say, you know what, you're going to stack the box with 10 guys. We don't care. We're just going to run the football. It, it, it was the most fun I had. I, and I remember I told you last week that I like rarely like really watch games live anymore because I do so much post game, like breaking them down and stuff. That was the first game, probably since I'd say maybe the Seattle Super Bowl, where I really felt myself get invested into it. Like yeah. I haven't paced watching a Patriots game since that Seattle Super Bowl. This was the first time that final sort of drive from Buffalo where I found myself kind of pacing in the living room. It was a fun little experience for me, i got to say.
0: Oh, yeah, it's absolutely a lot of fun. And it's cool when you you have a – that's the fun part about the run game, especially in this era when, you know, the weather was a huge part of this, obviously, with all the wind and everything. But when you face a team that just doesn't play a lot of nickel – yeah. Arm doesn't play a lot of three linebackers, and yeah. they mostly are in a base nickel, which is most the league. And yeah. I think Greg Cosell must have quoted that they've only played three linebackers once since week six, or yeah. not at or not since week six. So mm-hmm. when you put the least experienced personnel on the field, and you take what's your strength, and you just kind of say, "Listen, it's going to be a low-scoring game. Good luck, Josh." Uh, Josh. Um, Allen beating both us and mother nature. Right. Know, so have fun. with and, that. and
1: they read so much stuff at that third linebacker. Like I did ton in cheek do a three throws video <laughs> on Mac Jones. Cause he had the three pass attempts. So I broke them all down this morning. <laughs> um, but usually for Pat's pulpit, I do like a, a breakdown um, of Mac Jones on YouTube, but I broke down the run game and, They just ran at that third linebacker, you know, and late in the fourth quarter, they ran G lead, guard lead with a guard pulling and the fullback outcome. They ran it like on three straight plays and got positive yards on three straight. It, it was, it was certainly fun to watch. Now I don't think I'd love to sit here and say, this tells us that New England is the best team in the AFC. I don't think we really learned that on Monday night. I, I think it was a situation that they took advantage of that played to their strengths. I don't know if that game's played in a dome, if New England wins, you know, uh, Buffalo's right now built to win with the passing game. That's not their <laughs> strength. And, and and that's why a, a huge part of the discussion in Buffalo right now is, will they build a dome or not? Like, I'm sure you've been on Buffalo shows. I've been on yeah. Buffalo shows. They've asked me, like, what do you think about that? And I, that's an interesting discussion, but, you know, Neutral field, dome, whatever. I'm not so sure, sure we know which team is the better team right now. But on that night, New England had the game plan to win, and they executed it almost to perfection.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I hope they don't build a dome. I'm just, I, I don't know. There's something about being able to have northern teams play like their northern teams, and right? Just deal with that, and yeah, I mean for that, and
1: that and that's that. certainly the one side of the argument, which is use it to your advantage, right? Like. It, Construct an offense, a defense, a physical type of football team that when the Dolphins come north in in December, when you know Jacksonville or other teams come north late in the season, you can use that to your advantage. And remember, the Josh Allen argument in part was he can throw in these elements. Yeah, and and to his credit, like when he had to make throws to the right side when they were going into the wind, the ball did move. Like that back shoulder throw to Diggs, where oh, sure. that was a cannon shot, and it still moved. But his arm,
0: like. Yeah. I mean, this was an extreme scenario. Yeah. This I mean, was, it's 50 miles an hour. You don't see that every day. Yeah, exactly. Even when the weather is poor in Buffalo, you don't see you that all like the that. time. Yeah. So, I mean, let's. And you could just look to the other side and they just looked at. Mac Jones probably just looked at the wind and laughed and said, so we're running the ball on pretty much every down today. Because Well, I do I think what know. happened.
1: I do think what happened was they had their first pass attempt midway through the second quarter and it was into the wind and it was a five yard out and you saw it. John Smith had that to like Odell it over his head, over yeah. his head and like tip it to himself. It was just a like a 10 yard throw from launch point to catch point. And I'm pretty sure once Belichick saw that, he's like, <laughs> that's enough. And it's, it's, and it's not really an indictment on Mac Jones from an arm strength no. perspective. Like it's just, this is a strange set of circumstances yeah. that, I'd say eighty percent of NFL quarterbacks would probably struggle throw it in that situation because the ball is still going to move. Even Josh Allen, the ball still moved on him, so they adjust it. That's what they do.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you want a forty percent completion percentage on that night, then you need Josh Allen, Brett Favre, John Elway, and Warren yeah. Moon, maybe. Yeah. You know, and that that's basically your best shot. And so yep. we, you know you can't reach back into time from that standpoint. So let's, let's talk about a guy who I made a comparison to that. I think got a lot of people riled up, but I Uh wasn't, but I wasn't trying to like make a direct comparison. So, but it's, you know, Taysom Hill. And I just noted that watching Taysom Hill run around and, and, you know, make plays with his feet and occasionally make plays with his arm. And the way he looked, I, I just thought it was interesting because I thought to myself, I remember Steve Young, before he sat for four and a half, five years with a, you know, Joe Montana in front of him and what he was like after coming right. out of the USFL, and there's some similarities there in terms of the before, you know, before before Steve Young became Steve Young. Um, what are your thoughts on Taysom Hill's long-term prospects as a quarterback?
1: I think Sean Payton has to make a decision. What is he? Is he a quarterback or is he a, a X-factor player? Because the thing about young is he got to sit and learn the quarterback position. He, he got to sit and not focus on any, it wasn't like bill Walsh was saying, all right, Steve, you're going to, you're going to take over after Montana, but until then, you're going to be a tight end. You know, we're going to use you on some package stuff. Like, no, he got to sit and learn the position. And Young has talked about how as much as he hated it, Montana's written. And I got books over my shoulder, how much he hated it. But, it helped on in the long run, like learn the position. So I think could say some Hill be a started quarterback and a, a good one in the NFL? Yeah. But I think Sean Payton would have to say, that's all you're doing. None of this gadget stuff. You don't, you know, we're not running pass plays with you. We're not running, you know, fullback misdirection or tight end wide misdirection, end around stuff with you. You're learning the quarterback position. They, they would have to do it that way because you can't like split the baby here. No, do I think they'll do that? Probably not because he's useful in that role.
0: Is this part of is this part of um Sean Payton basically letting his competitive spirit get the best yes, of him?
1: Absolutely, right?
0: Yeah. Like yeah. like
1: I have I've said this before, that scene from The Office where Michael is force feeding Kevin Broccoli and just shoving it down his throat. <laughs> that's Sean Payton with Taysom Hill to everybody else. He's like, I could do this and you're gonna like it. And I feel like that's how it is, because so many people myself included i've been like you got to stop this taste you can't take drew Brees off the field on third and two for Taysom hill all the time like like he's just force fed because sean payton maybe thinks he's smarter than everybody in many ways he is he, yeah. he's an nfl coach i'm a dude in front of a microphone but i think with this one he's kind of you know dug his feet in and he's not given to the yeah he's a
0: he's he's given into the gadget thing where it's like yeah. the person who's got the nice sound system but they've got like 20 remotes on their table and it's like, good luck trying to figure out how to operate everything. And it's like a full-time job having to do it. So if somebody else has to, you know, if the wife, if the wife actually had to go down there and like, operate the TV or do something, it would be like you'd have to get a degree in something to in, in some sort of technical oriented field just to be able to do all that stuff. Yeah. You know, so much less label it right. So yeah, I mean that I look at Hill and I, I agree with you. I think in theory he can be a a good he can be a, a quarterback, but in practice at this stage where he's already at, I mean, how old is he now? Is fucking
1: I think he's thirty at this point.
0: Yeah, I just don't see it happening. I mean, you know, unless he's thirty-one. Yeah, I, I think this is—I think this is one of those scenarios where it's a little too late. Yeah, you know, so he can give you—he's going to give you something, but it's not—you know—it's yeah. not starter, high-end starter skills three, four, five years down the line. Right. So, so what about the Gardner Minshew Jalen Hurts oh, no. <laughs> scenario? I mean, I know you probably talked about with Rachel Provet some yeah. and and you know, but should there be a debate about who to start? And not yet. Okay.
1: I don't think so, not yet. I mean, did Gardner play well? Yeah, like I think he played well. And you know me, I've been a fan of Gardner sort of dating back to his time at Washington State. I was relatively high on him. And that draft cycle I wanted the Eagles to draft him to put him behind ones because I thought he'd be a great fit for their offense. I love him from a, you know, competitive toughness standpoint. Like I thought he played well. Some throws were, you know, the second touchdown to God, for example, was kind of underthrown, but he put it on him. It's general accuracy downfield, but it was also against the jets. And, you know, I, I think had he done this against say the giants a week ago or, You know, if he plays in two weeks against Washington, which has a good defense now that they've sort of adjusted Landon Collins in his role, then maybe you open the door a little bit. But I I still think that, you know, this is a a team that can be successful with Jalen Hurts and what Hurts offers this entire offense from a conceptual standpoint with what he can do with the run game. I I think that's where they want to be. So I don't think we're there yet. But if Minshew has to play again and plays well and or if Hurts struggles and they have to sit him down, then we might sort of be there for the stretch run.
0: Yeah, I mean, to me, this really is the plan here From that it seems to me that the Eagles had is, again, they identified that Minshew was a good fit for their offense in yeah. terms of what their offense is um, on paper. I don't. I think Jalen Hurts obviously didn't get the full endorsement after last year, and that was more of a tryout. And they yep. recognize that this would be rookie year part two in terms yep. of quarterbacks getting those eighteen to twenty four starts to kind of to figure out who he is, and then whether they can live with who he is to see how he grows and develops from there. You know, because I think it's that eighteen to twenty four starts that allows the player to acclimate to the point where you can say. Has he acclimated to the point that he shows what he showed on college tape? Right. And can he? Sh- and if he can manifest what he showed on college tape, then we can talk about the holes in his game and see how he improves. And it's right. the holes in his game that other people ignore. Like if you're not really scouting the guy, then you may ignore those holes and go, well, you know, he 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 succeeded at Oklahoma for this, or he succeeded at you know in Alabama with these things. But then when you project to the NFL and say these things are going to be problems, those are the things that we're looking at from games 18 to 24 on, you know, right. like post-18 to 24, and see if he can make incremental improvements and, and develop from there. But the other things are the first 18 to 24 is the baseline. So that said, you know, I think Hertz, they know Hertz is still in the middle of this. So Hertz has obviously the, the greater upside. You know, he's got the bigger arm. He's got the the better ability to run. You know, Minshew can move and maneuver and, and buy time. And Minshew's wiser about it than Hurts is. Yeah. You know, absolutely wiser about it. He's more accurate in the middle of the field than Hurts is right now. But Hurts, maybe post-18 to 24 games, could be better than Gardner Minshew long-term and give you a much more dynamic player. And the one thing Gardner Minshew isn't going to give you is he's not going to unlock Devonta Smith with Smith playing right. on the outside? He he had several throws in that game against the Jets that he underthrew, including a really what should have been a touchdown on a back shoulder play where he underthrew the back shoulder. Like like even for that play, it would, came in too low, and as a result of that. Yes, he unlocked Dallas Goddard, but those were all schemed plays with the exception of the underthrown ball that Goddard had to go up and win right. from you know C.J. Mosley and then take a hit from a safety because Minshew couldn't place the ball where it needed to be um, for it to be like a pinpoint catch. Right. And that's the difference that you get here. So I look at it this way. Jalen Hurts is the guy that, that Nick Sirianni... And the Eagles organization hopes elevates his game so that he can become their Dak Prescott in the sense of a, you know, a, I know he was a second round pick, but a mid round value right. who emerges into being a, become a star player. And then Minshew's more the guy where you say, we got the backup who can start for us. And if Hertz doesn't play well enough or you know, then we can move Minshew. My fear, though, is is this, is that Eagles fans go nuts over Minshew. They won a game, even though it was against the Jets. Yeah. And, you know, sports radio then influences the, the owner's box. And then the yeah. owner's box is like puts pressure on the coach. Now, the coach's long-term plan is Hurts. But the short-term plan to keep your job winds up having to be Minshew, which happens in the league all around. All the time. And so Minshew's your kind of like, let me get it fixed and get it right plan, and maybe we can find someone to replace him down the line because we have good enough team around him. But then as a result, you basically undercut your long-term plan. That's the best possible outcome.
1: Yeah, so- and it, it's, it's weird because, you know – I- Either I might have the reported wrong, but I think it's ownership that actually believes in Hertz. Uh, I've read some report on this. Oh, and nice. It's the general manager that doesn't believe in Hertz. Uh, and, and so you might get the general manager, Howie Roseman saying, look, I, I think you need to go to Minshew. He's the guy I traded for. I, like, I might have that wrong. I, I've read some reported that ownership believes one, general manager believes the other. Sirianni sort of caught in the middle. Now, Sirianni said... When he's healthy, Hurts is our starter, but he did give it that qualifier, which gives him some wiggle room, so we'll see.
0: So basically, we're in that like Men of Honor sh- movie with Robert De Niro, yep. and um, what's-his-face, I don't remember. Cuba right. Good Jr. Junior. Cuba, yeah, where, where basically you've got the bureaucrat in the middle between yep. like, the old soldiers who are up high and then like the rank and file, and yep. you know who doesn't know what he's doing. I, I don't know if Howie Roseman doesn't know what he's doing, but the fact that you add Gardner Minshew... And you want to undercut your development plan because maybe you feel pressure in your job, not your, not your head coach. I guess yeah. you know it's political. You know, yeah. so it is what it is. So, what are who are some college prospects of note for you?
1: Um, let's see. I, I circled back to receivers. Um, Traylon Burks. Uh, I did some stuff on him. Oh, you did, huh? Um, I, I like him very much as a vertical threat. He had a, a catch against Old Miss on a vertical ball where Corner was giving him ten yards of cushion pre-snap. And he, he tries to keep that cushion. Five yards downfield, Burks, Corner still has five yards of cushion. He puts the arm up anyway. He's like, I don't care. Throw me the ball. Matt Corral throws it to him, but he wins it at the catch point. Wow. Um, you know, and I, I think he's pretty schematically diverse. Um, I I think vertical based pass and offenses might like him a bit more, but you've seen him do some stuff underneath some slants and some stuff like that, um, that that I thought were kind of impressive. Um, Drake London, Drake London from USC. I get, I get, I know you talked about him already. I get very much a, a Mike Williams vibe from him. Yeah. Like vertical guy wins at the catch point, wins contested catches. You know, I wonder a bit about separation. Uh, like can he consistently separate at the next level? And this is one of those tensions with you know, at least maybe it's the keel Harry that's burned me situation, but you look at contested catch receivers of the college level and is that's just a nice way of saying this is a guy that can't get open. You know, he's certainly not gonna be able to get open in the NFL if he's struggling on Saturdays. But I I wanna watch him a little bit more. Um he, he showed When he was facing press, he was very good on slant routes. Like, he was very effective separating from press alignment, not always press technique, but press alignment on slant routes. And so that gives me some hope that, yeah, he can separate. It's just that in USC's offense, they were like, go win balls. Like we're going to throw back shoulder. We're going to throw contested stuff to you. Just go be a ball winner. We don't need you to do the refined technical stuff that you'll need to do at the next level, which is always the scout the traits, not the scheme argument. I think if if you look hard enough, you can find moments of him winning against press alignment, separating against press alignment, where you can think, yeah, he can separate at the next level.
0: Yeah, and I agree with you. I think he can. Um, but you know, it's, it's that Mike Williams, Michael Pittman kind of thing going on with him in terms of style. And you look at Pittman and you wondered about whether he was going to really be able to separate in the NFL too. And he's matched well with the scheme where he runs a lot of crossing routes, you know, corner routes and things that they're not asking him to do the bulk of that high end separation work, you know, in terms of what they ask from the scheme. So, yeah, I mean, that's a, he's, he's a fun player, a guy I watched. Was Kyron Williams Notre Dame?
1: Oh yeah. And
0: you know, he's interesting. Um he certainly has some speed, I think, though I watched a linebacker at Purdue run him down, like yeah. in a way that I was like, either that line I gotta check out the linebacker a little more. I have a note to check out this linebacker because I've seen other runs where he's you know been able to beat cornerbacks and, and hold off safeties but I saw a run where he had a runway and to see that, to see that linebacker cover 30 yards and run him down was like a wild moment. So I might be more interested in that linebacker from Purdue, but, uh, but you know, Williams to me, he fits all. This is going to sound like logo scouting, but I think it's more just inherent to the Notre Dame system for the past, you know, what five, mm-hmm. seven years, you know, or maybe even longer than that. Um, I think it's the same system that essentially even CJ Procise was yep. was in, and it's they yeah. like they're good with gap plays, but they're not very good with with zone plays. And Kyron Williams is no exception. He's like a good gap runner. He's a good run to space player, but ask him to press a crease, and he it, it's not even a nominal like press in the direction. It's like the minute he sees an opening. He even if he could manipulate it by pressing two one to two or three steps towards the line, yep. he just won't do it, and he he takes away yardage from his gains as a re- result of doing that. So I wasn't overly impressed with Kyron Williams. I think he has some NFL skills to his game, and I could see how he'd fit in a duo or gap scheme. But yeah. that's um, you know, that's where I am with him. That I was a little bit on with a guy that I did enjoy watching was Davion Thomas out of Utah. Who's a, who's a four yeah. stud running back out of Dayton who went to Cincinnati. I guess it didn't work out, went to Juco and was homeless for a little while. And yeah. now he's like with Utah and he's, he's a limited athlete in terms of his ability to bend and make hard cuts, but he's a downhill zone runner you know, I think of another Utah back back in the day by the name of Mike Anderson, who yep. was big, strong, and could get through the hole fast. And Tavion Thomas has some of that. He's got some cut but he's a good cutback runner. Um and he's he's a guy that um if he can learn to hold on to the ball, that was his biggest problem. Like they had a huge issue with him. He averages a fumble, I think, every I think 50 or 40 something attempts which is extraordinarily bad yeah. but he's gotten better over the course of this year. He had like nine fumbles I think prior to this year in his career. So, he's fascinating in terms of maybe a late round guy who might be able to give you something if he shores up some of the some of the the issues he has with ball security. Now, this reminds me I've been stalling because I give Mark a list of like of like <laughs> plays and so like I was I was trying to rack my brain as we're going through this, why I asked the first question on our list, and I couldn't think of the, the example I had for it, so I stalled. I finally figured it out because okay. I was looking at my screen, which is what's your least favorite offensive play that's common to NFL playbooks?
1: It's a Shanahan design that he calls both run back um i've seen obviously the niners and some of the other shanahan mcveigh teams run it the giants have loved to run it over the past couple of years I've, i've seen chicago run it and it's an under center maximum protection play action pass and play now right there you've got me hooked i'm in we're going under center play action maximum protection We're taking a deep shot downfield, baby. We're going to hit you over the top on Yankee or post over, or maybe it's going to be the burner adjustment where instead of post over, it's over in a corner route. You you saw a big play from Herbert to Mike Williams on burner this week, but no, what's both run back, Mike. I mean, Matt, Mike (laughs) curl routes. That's it. Just mirrored curl routes. That's it. And I understand why, you might do that because you get maximum protection under set to play action. You you're setting up shot plays, they are thinking shot plays, so you just check up and run the curl. But man, it's just boring to me. It's it's just like a letdown. It's it's like sitting down at a, a restaurant that has a great reputation, and you order something that you're really excited about eating, and it lands on your in front of you, and you're like, Man, the presentation is phenomenal. This is gonna be the best meal of my life. And it's just kind of all right. It's like I, I see what you were going for. I get it but like man I just wanted more.
0: There you go. And listen, I'm I understand the the one that I can't stand is duo. Yeah. I can't stand duo running scheme. Um and I get that there's at least for the NFL and for some of the teams that use it. Like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers use duo. Yes. Why? Because you know, now if you were using Giovanni Bernard as your main running back, I would get it because he'll press a crease. He's shifty. He can get between tight creases, and he can give you yardage that way, and then you can use him as a receiver out of the backfield, out of those sets, and you know that you're going to have tight creases. You're not going to get a ton of yards on a big breakaway plays out of him because of the nature of your scheme. But it's safe for for the offensive line. I think that's why people use it is that – it's easier to get double teams on things. You're not going to have as many blown assignments against it so that you don't get huge losses from Duo. But it's basically basically like training wheels for a run game. Because as a result of that, you have Leonard Fournette, who, Mm -hmm. as I've always talked about, is a cement mixer, basically with a high-powered engine and no brakes. And when you ask that cement mixer to go downhill... Um, it's not gonna make sudden stops or swerve like uh, you know another two to three lanes over without tipping over, and that's where you know Fournette's a fine back. And who, as I've stated on Twitter, who knew that we'd be thinking? You know, three years ago we were thinking Christian McCaffrey's a the all-around receiving back, and Leonard Fournette's a ticking time bomb with his with his a- a- ankle and foot. And now we're looking at Christian McCaffrey and wondering if he's ever gonna be able to stay healthy. And and Leonard Fournette has 58 catches right now, <laughs> you know. Right, and he was always could he could always catch the ball. But the thing for me is that Fournette's ill not matched well as a runner for that scheme. He's a power runner. Give him give him gap plays, power counter toss, you know, and let that big fella get downhill and he'll accelerate through you. He was one of the right. few backs I've ever seen in in this era who was so good at accelerating into contact to begin his career. And I think he'd still do that if you gave him plays where he had a runway. And so their offensive line may just not be a good match for it, but I hate duo because it, it just kills the run game. It just keeps it from being awful in a on a, on a – Bat, you know, keeps your team in a down and distance schedule that helps Tom Brady. So I right. get it, but it doesn't make your run game good. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's it for me. Um. So we got a we got a a, a a reader question from Chris Kinda, who is a you know who's a big fan of the show and and of Mark's work and my work and and he. He had this question I thought would be fun for us to answer. And, and I think we've talked about it in some incarnations, but we can give it a little bit more time here. And that's um, Chris wrote, I find it fascinating both Matt and Mark are successful after drastically making a change well into their careers. I'm curious for the RSP podcast, what skills traits have you learned do, um, doing seemingly unrelated jobs or hobbies that helped with your um, career? For example, my previous competitive golf career taught me analysis and problem solving, which I've combined with my interest in finance to have a successful career in threat finance. So, Mark, yeah. what do you you know? What are your what have you it learned? Is,
1: it's an awesome question from Chris, who, by the way, he he asked for an executive producer credit on the pod, and I think we can give him one yep. uh, for a good question like this. Um, persuasive righted and persuasive argument, like uh, from my time as a, a civil litigator. Um, you know, when you, we, I'll I'll give a quick story. The couple of weeks ago we were at, um, a friend's house, um, you know, our, our kids are friends and stuff like that. And they, they had redone their, their entire backyard and they had sort of a, an open house for a bunch of families. And I was talking to a dad, I know, who's also a lawyer. Um, and he was like, you know, I don't understand anything about football, but I read some of your stuff and I could, it, it felt like I was reading a motion for summary judgment. Uh, because of the way you structure it and the way you sort of structure the way it flows and you say what you're going to prove and then you try to prove it and then you have a conclusion and and that's kind of how I approach the stuff that I write it's I'm trying to convince the reader I'm treating the reader as like a judge and I'm saying look this is my conclusion and here's all the evidence I got for it and this is why at the end you're going to side with me and so that's sort of persuasive writing comes from my time as a litigator. And then, you know, persuasive argument, like, you know, trying to respond to questions from judges in the moment isn't all that dissimilar from trying to respond to a question from a radio host or a podcast. It's like, here's a question. What say you go and, you know, find it a way to sort of in the moment structure an argument, come up with a good answer and do it in a way that doesn't leave the person one and more that sort of leads them to where you want to go but it's also and this is more for the the football media side somewhat entertaining so they like oh this this was an insightful answer and we'll want to have you back because there's nothing worse you can do as a, a guest on a show or a guest on a radio spot than in response to a question give like a 10 word answer and now they're scrambling to fill airtime you've got a 20 minute segment they got to fill And man, we're three minutes in and they're out of questions. Uh, Like you've got to help them, which will, and then make them think, man, we we need somebody to talk about this or that we're going to bring this guy back, you know? So structuring arguments in the moments while you're answering questions is also something I learned from many experiences with judges who, you know, kind of brought the hammer down on me, but to be able to sort of, Oh, you're going to ask me a question that I'm really not comfortable answering because of the way the argument is had or the way the facts of the case are. I'm going to move it in a different direction and try to do that on the fly. So, if somebody asks me about a quarterback and I haven't quite studied them, I'll try to, you know, move it to a different direction. Um, so, so, that, and then finally, look, the, the old adage of if the facts are on your side, hammer the facts. If the law is on your side, hammer the law. If nothing's on your side, hammer the table. Like you, you lean on that as well, right? Because if, if I'm trying to make an argument and I, I don't have film or I don't have numbers, I'll just rely on some crazy emotional way to do it. But yeah, my, my time as a litigator taught me persuasive argument, persuasive writing, and that's how I approach what I do. Nice.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating when you look back at your career because, I mean, I can think of a lot of things, but I mean, one for sure that comes out is just just being a music student has i've leaned a lot on music and i think everybody knows that and it it comes from the fact that you know russ landy once said that i've heard him say repeatedly you know that it's that it's harder to become an nfl scout than it is to become an nfl player if you look at just the odds and the player pool and and you know the number of people trying to get get that gig and the success rate of that And then he says it's harder to become a media scout than it is to become an NFL scout, at least to make a successful living doing that. And I would say the only thing harder than that that I know of that I can say I've experienced is seeing people try and make it in the music industry um, on a successful level on a national type of level where they can sustain just on the basis of making their own product, not just gigging. You know, yeah. I mean, gigging is hard enough as it is. Mark can attest to that as a guy. He's a, he's like a successful gigging musician who's hired by, uh, you know, some, some national and regional acts, you know, and to, to do work. And that's a, that just like, there's some great musicians out there that you've never heard of who do fantastic work, you know, or you've seen, but you, you may not see them on TV, you know? Yeah. And, you know, so you know, being in an environment around a lot of musicians like that who went on to those types of careers, both national Grammy nominated, Grammy winning to people who are just, ma- you know, who are making good livings, gigging, you know, playing your local weddings, playing at events um, that you see all around your town or, uh, you know, or then occasionally will get a job with a national act when they come through. Um trying to play music at that level i learned a lot about the similarities between especially the music i wanted to play which was basically improvisational music which which includes jazz um r&b funk you know rock and roll things like that latin music you learning some of that or getting exposed to a lot of that you realize that learning your instrument is a lot like learning technique as a as a football player and so a lot of what i learned as a musician applied well to what i would was going to learn as a scout and it helped me draw parallels between the two that made it quicker for me to 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 kind of connect the dots to understand what it is that i needed to look for um and it continues to be something that I draw from. And now that I've gone back to starting to play music every day and I practice, you know, I I practice like at 1, 2 o'clock in the morning until about 5 or 6 in the morning and try and get some sleep. And I've been doing that this this fall a lot as I'm trying to learn a cup and add an instrument as well. You, It reinforces to you the kind of practice and work that players have to do in addition to what it is that they that they're doing you know in on in a team environment so i'm kind of learning things like that i'd say my management career i had an unusual career in the sense that there aren't you know there's a lot of call centers out there but i started when the call center industry was still really just getting underway so i don't know how it's structured now i've been out of that business for you know 15 years at least now. Um, But, you know, I had to do client services work. I had to do recruiting. I had to do initial training. I had to manage scheduling. I had to manage, um, you know, operations. And I was an operations guy, but I had to kind of do a little bit of everything and own a little bit of everything. So there's a lot of entrepreneurial training in my mid to late 20s and early 30s that was going on that I didn't realize from that. So... Being someone that, you know, running a business like I do, even though it's, you know, essentially a two person business in terms of the payroll, my wife and I, um, you you know, it's learning to learning a, that you, you know, that you have to own a little bit of everything and you can't be afraid to, to learn new things and, and try new things, um, But that the operation and good customer service is probably the most important two things. Um, You know, I want to thank the listeners and readers that I have because when I fuck up an email and don't put, like, the right password in for, you you know, in my mass email to to subscribers and they get it wrong, I'd say 98% of you guys are apologizing to me for emailing me about a fuck-up of mine, Um, which... I probably would have paid thousands of dollars to get the customer service that I have. And a lot of that is I've learned how to do that through teaching people how to provide customer service. So I try to do it with a sense of humor um, that I probably wouldn't be able to have taught other people and keep it in the style of who I am. But having that level, having the kind of customers... Um, learning that you attract the customers with the kind of product and brand that you present um, and how to use that to your advantage. And I would say that I'm very happy with the customer base I have because of that fact. And it's something that I learned through this gig. Um, I also learned through both of those gigs that criticism, you have to forget, you have to remember to apply and apply it, but you need to forget about it after you've applied after you've applied it or after you figured out how to use it because you have to have kind of a cornerback mentality with mistakes you know you know you you go okay well i screwed that up i'm sure we'll look at that in the film room later but it's time to move forward um because if i'm pointing fingers and blaming or doing and this applies well to anybody even playing fantasy football or in life it's just like you certainly have reasons that are outside your own control but if you continue to harp on them to the point that you're not focused on what you can do to be better, then all you're doing is whining, you know, at the end of the day. And it's, so there's things like that. Um, I would say, you know, those are probably the ones that come to mind the most is that is just, you know, and I wrote before all of that. So it's, you know, it's those, those yeah. jobs applied to this one. It's really the same gig, you yeah. know, in terms of writing. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe one day I'll have a career that'll teach me how to speak a little bit better. So <laughs> no, once that'll happen. You speak really well, fine.
1: my friend. Now, I mean, to, to the music point, one of the things that I've always been in awe of with your work is your ability to use music to relate to readers because that's everybody has music they listen to everybody has an experience with music and to be able to take that and use it to relate a topic or a trait or a player or a scheme in written work is phenomenal it's one of the things that you know when i, I see you go on a in a piece on a musical tangent i know it's like we're going to church friends buckle on in um it, it's so impressive the way that you can do that and so yeah, the, the music student stuff is incredible. I and anytime well, you, you strap in for a musical reference, I'm all in. Well, I appreciate that. And I think a lot of that still comes from probably even the call center days,
0: because when you have to wear that many hats, you start yeah. to see across things. And I think it's I think when you get trained to it's it's like for an athlete with their cross training. When you can, when you played basketball and you played baseball or volleyball, you can learn new tasks as you apply them on, you can see the connections. And I think that those types of experiences and helped enforce this. So, you know, I can joke, you know, I can joke around and say family, you know, you thought I was never going to like, um, you know, have like anything in life because I kept trying so many new different things. And why don't you just settle down and and find something and just get a regular job like everybody right. else. I'm like, well, I was just, it turns out I was just, I needed the training. You
1: yeah. Know, that's yep. kind of
0: where it went. So um, let's talk about evaluation a little more. I had this thought on this quote I saw on Twitter because <laughs> I, I wrote it, but it was, <laughs> 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 but but I, but I wanted to talk about it here because I think it's, I think it's important to kind of the type of the work we do, which is, when evaluating players the opposition is the variable but what the player does within his control to create potentially positive outcomes is the constant and yeah. i wondered how you know could you talk about how you apply that or think about that when it comes to quarterbacks or or any position that
1: you i mean my, my initial gut reaction was the drake london conversation right which is, you know, some weeks he'll see maybe more press alignment or even more press technique when other weeks he's seen a lot more off coverage. Okay, well, how does he then use his skill set to separate, to make plays, to get open, you know, to, to finish plays? And so, you know, that's an example from the receiver position. But, but from the quarterback position, you know, it is similar, right? Some teams will be more static up front, more static in the secondary, and they'll give you a much cleaner picture of everything pre-snap you know, maybe they don't blitz you a ton. Other teams, will they'll spin their safeties more. They'll blitz you more. They'll adjust more. Like, are you wildly, are you a wildly different quarterback against one team versus the other? Or can you manage things pre-snap, post-snap to make the best educated decisions with the football once you need to make that kind of decision? And so, yeah, I mean, we're talking about analyzing traits. And, you know, we talked earlier this season about, our sort of evaluation process, right? What kind of games do we watch? You watch weather games. Matt Jones, Monday night, that's a weather game, okay? You see how they handled him. Maybe that makes you think something about him. Maybe it doesn't, but that's a weather game. Kenny Pickett, I see it now. I can see it coming down the pipe. The hand size debate is going to be an issue with Kenny Pickett. Well, watch him in colder weather. Watch him in rain, snow. He played in Pittsburgh. Has he had problems with the football in the pocket? Has he had fumbles? Has he missed throws because of his hand size? I would say no, but do the work. You know, and, and so you're looking at traits, the the elements, the other teams, those are the the variables. The constant is the quarterback, him or herself, and how they handle those moments and how they respond to those external factors, whether they be defensive teams, schemes, weather, elements, whatever.
0: Yeah, and I think this is a very important or essential point to scouting that often comes up when you're looking at players at the difference between good and great yeah and and sometimes it doesn't matter if the player is good or great if he's got great surrounding talent a good example is mark ingram mark ingram was a running back who had i believe when he's played at least 15 games he's been a top 10 producer at his position three out of the four times that he's done that or four out of the five times that he's done that. Um, And so that tells you something right there that he's a good running back. He was a Heisman winner, obviously. So, you know, he can play now. Is he Jonathan Taylor? Is he in the same realm as what Jonathan Taylor has shown thus far? I would argue he was never in the realm that Jonathan Taylor is showing thus far, even though Jonathan Taylor also has a great team around him. Um, But Does it matter really at the end of the day for a team or even a fantasy team if the player is good or great, if they're both, if they're, if you're with good surrounding talent, I would say not really, unless you're looking for the difference between getting a, you know, the top one, an elite production and top 10 production, which I'd say you're aiming for bullseyes that, that maybe you shouldn't be aiming for when you're building a team. If you build a great all-around team, you're likely to hit the real bullseye, which is win your championship, as opposed to hitting the bullseye on one position, which costs you, you know, three other positions right. and you're not as, as strong of a team. So I, I say that because when I look at this variable of between good and great, though, you know, a lot of it depends on fit, but you know, people I think miss out on this a lot because you you know, Javante Williams had the best game of any running back this week, if you look at it from a fantasy perspective. Right. Um, I think Javante Williams compares very favorably to Mark Ingram as a player. Maybe a little more powerful, a little more. But not as powerful as people think. And I think a lot of that is because when they evaluate a player, they don't look at the opposition as the variable um, and what the player can do within his own control. They look at... A player pushing through reps and they don't—they don't, de- they don't um, distinguish between the types of tackles, the angle yeah. of the tackle, the the the, the position that uh, the 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 size of the defender, and the angle that he's taking, and what the and as well as what the and knowing where to divorce, when to factor in the players, the opposition, and when to divorce yourself from from those players. And, and a good example of that is that, you know, I heard about Javante every time I um, looked at Twitter, I kept seeing Javante Williams, Javante Williams all over the place. And I, again, I think he was the safest back in this class by no, by a mile, the safest of this, of the future starters. But that said, looking at that game against Kansas city, a lot of those runs, i i posted one on twitter that showed like basically broadcast versus analysis where al Al michaels is like screaming power like he's having an orgasm you know and that that kind of orgasmic excitement that that broadcasters provide do it's for entertainment value it's to keep you interested in the game and and it certainly does its job al michaels is great at what he does but, absolutely. But it also does influence us. We you know, we like to say commercials don't influence us, but then we do studies and shows that they absolutely essentially do. And I would I would bet dollars to donuts it's the same way with broadcasters on, you know, on football games who do play-by-play, they make they make Javonte Williams sound like the next coming to Jim Brown with the power right. that he has. And then when you analyze it, you're like it was good. It wasn't. It wasn't great. If you really have a standard of what you judge by, and but it's my point with that is the way people are influenced is I'll put that on Twitter and I'll have people who are, are readers and are very kind and thoughtful who will be like, you know, I like your work, you know, but I just can't agree with you on that. I think this guy's special, you know, and and it's the same thing I got when after evaluating Clyde Edwards Hilaire, who is not right. as powerful as Javante Williams but ran through the Texans' defense, the Texans' lowly defense, in the opener last year. And you would have thought Clyde Edwards-Hilaire was the next coming of Marshall Falk, Brian Westbrook, combined with a dash of, you know, somebody else into that factor. And now everyone's, like, completely down on Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. And, like, you know, I saw um, Josh Liskowitz at PFF going, basically saying, please, God, let Darrell Williams don't don't you dare take Darrell Williams off the field for the chiefs, you know, it's right. switched to that level of like that tenor of the argument. And it's like, yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with that. When we evaluate, we aren't doing enough to divorce ourselves from the factors that the opposition bring and knowing when to include it and when to divorce ourselves from it. And as a result, we get too caught up in the hysteria of seeing things that we actually should be incorporated into our evaluation. Yeah. All right. So let's let's pick two positions and explain. You know, explain to our <laughs> audience something you observe with those two positions in the NFL that's low-hanging fruit for them to improve upon, and what would you prescribe for them to improve?
1: Yeah. I mean, let me think. I'll, I'll go quarterback, wide receiver. Obviously, that's kind of my wheelhouse. I mean, I, I think with quarterback. You know something I am seeing. I actually talked to my dad about this over the weekend. Arm slot from quarterbacks. I, I think you know because of the RPO game, because of the playing off outside the pocket, off of structure, we've become enamored with dropping the arm slot, and I think it's almost come to the detriment for some passers. I mean. Again, I think the world of Lamar Jackson, I think he's one of the game's most dynamic quarterbacks, one of the game's best pocket passers. I still believe that. But he's really dropped that arm slot to the point where it's that's not where he throws from. He looks more like Bernie Kosar than other NFL quarterbacks. So that's why slot, I
0: liked him so much.
1: There you go. But the, the, and By <laughs> the way, Bernie's commercial with Baker is hilarious. Yes, I is. will say that. Yeah. Bernie's commercial with Baker is yes. absolutely hilarious.
0: Baker's good in that.
1: Baker's great in those commercials. Yeah. I love him in those commercials. I do
0: want to see him get evicted. I do want to see. Yeah. A, I want to see an eviction from the house, but but I, I maybe think a good landing spot or a moving day.
1: Yeah, I think that will come if he signs an extension. They'll do it sort of tongue in cheek. I, yeah. I think that would be pretty funny. But yeah. Lamar has really sort of dropped the arm slot a lot to where it's really like ear to side arm, and I, I and maybe that's working for him. That's where he wants to be. But I do think we've kind of become enamored with dropping the arm slot, sometimes the detriment of quarterbacks where you're trying to do it too much when you should have that more consistent release point and have that club in the bag. And obviously anything mechanical, that's an off-season fix that you're going to have to work through with private quarterback coaches and all that stuff. But, yeah, I mean, the arm slot with quarterbacks. And then you've talked about this a lot, so I'm going to be brief here, but just hand technique at the catch point for receivers. I mean, that's probably what you have teed up, so I'll step aside. But, I mean, when you're – you know trying to catch a ball above your waist with the pinkies like down or you're doing this below the, like just hand technique at the catch point.
0: Yeah. That was obviously you're absolutely there. It's like clapping on the ball, learn not to clap on the ball, learn how to get your hands up so that they are the, the, the fingers are as close together as possible before the ball arrives, not, trying to meet the ball with them um, so that you don't wind up clapping on and fighting it and, and knowing and getting down from the, basically the, the waist to the shoulders, knowing when you're going to use underhand and when you're going to use overhand to, to catch the ball that right there. And then for running backs, I'll say this. um, There are a lot of dynamic running backs who would do themselves a, a major justice if they could learn how to point their toe and open their hips as opposed to making a jump cut or a jump stop that, you know, when you can learn to change direction at a 90 degree angle by simply opening your hips, by pointing the toe to the boundary, to the direction you want to go, you've basically eliminated between two to three steps towards the line of scrimmage that you don't have to unnecessarily make. And that means that you can get outside earlier and avoid penetration, or or you know set up blocks better. And by setting up blocks better, what that means is now you can add those two to three steps back in by pressing the crease deeper. Because once you have confidence in the fact that you can change direction fast enough by pointing that toe and getting outside, rather than making a jump stop or jump cut, now it incur- that the next step will be. I can get into the lineman's back on a zone play and press the inside shoulder or outside shoulder and then make that quick change of direction. Um, and it doesn't cost me as much space. It will open the blocks further and I can develop a trust in that situation happening. But before that happens, you've got to be able to be confident in your ability to change direction because that's what's going to... That's what will ultimately stop you from pressing a crease. It's like the the it seems like the root thing to start with would be to press the crease tighter. Right. But it's actually backwards. If you can have confidence in changing the direction, then you're gonna be more um have more faith in pressing the crease um deeper into the line. So listen, you you know we're gonna poke fun at Dan Orlovsky. You can <laughs> I, I saw his pizza thing and he literally said I think I s he said quote you know, I think I'm. You know, I think I'm gonna. I should maybe should I quit my job or I think I should quit my gig to start a a, deli- a food truck. And he showed yeah. a picture of pizza. Now, it could have been really tasty pizza. Yeah. But but it didn't look all that good to be honest. Yeah. Like it wasn't like a it wasn't food porn on the level that you see on in Instagram or other people's things. I mean, so. It, it it looked like a very strong example of a lack of self awareness on the food scene for himself there on that end. So I just thought we'd offer some alternatives. Yeah. So based on their food picks that you've seen from analysts, which analysts make your shortlist? And I'm going to lead off. I'm going to say, listen, Josh Norris. If you've seen Josh,
1: yes, Norris that's a great call. Josh
0: Norris's Instagram. Oh, my God. Like, that's that's a mouthwatering set of pictures right there because he's, I don't know what he's doing, whether he's ordering in at a, from fine restaurants or he's making that himself, and I think he's making it himself. That dude can burn in a kitchen. That is yeah. some, that's some fine work. And I got to say, um, you know, his buddy, Matt, Matt Harmon, you know, yep. Matt Harmon does pretty nice work himself too. If you're into the out so doing stuff with me, <laughs> you know, he's yeah. someone that he's also someone that does a really nice job. Who are your two?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I, I often live by the rule of never post plate. Like it's not going to go good for you. Like, it's just not going to go well for you. It, it's a risky proposition, but two that do stand out. One is Ted Wynn from The Athletic. Yeah, that's a great call. If you're talking pizza, he's got like the brick oven that he built. Like, he's got it down. He's got the pizza stones. Like, it just – he always does very good work. And so, if you're talking like a pizza food truck, Ted's definitely the guy. Obviously, look, Josh and Harmon are incredible. They're two great picks. But another guy I'll go, recently joined PFF, so he's been – getting me coached up getting us coached up in the group chat about the uh the cincinnati uh, uh food scene trevor Sycama, because oh, trevor yeah. is always out you know whether he's out with with alissa god trevor will you please propose for the love of god um <laughs> but yeah um whether they're out to dinner together or if he's on his own or if he's out to dinner with, with buddies like he made like he taught himself how to do um carbonara recently and i'm a huge italian food guy i love making carbonara he did that recently um so yeah i mean Trevor sick a, he's a must follow on the gram trevor's great on social media anyway but but for the food pics plus you get pictures of marvel their marvel their dog who's adorable uh, but trevor definitely as well would be a pick
0: so trevor needs to learn how to stand in the pocket that's what he needs to do huh so.
1: i have i have a post-it It's not here right now because I got a new monitor set up that I have two things that I have to do every day. Two things. One, I have to shame my friend Shane Alexander into working out. And two is to shame Trevor into proposing to Alyssa. As a matter of fact, I'm not the only one that lives by this because Trevor has this thing where when the Buccaneers are at halftime, he still does it, even though he's a PFF now. He doesn't ask me anything during halftime of Buccaneers games. And every single time he does this, a reef gets in and says, are you going to propose today? like without fail, and Alyssa will jump in and be like, yeah, Trevor, are you going to propose today? Like it's become a bit on the timeline.
0: Yeah, well, Trevor doesn't want to be known from retreating in the pocket. That's all no, I gotta know. No, man,
1: you don't Tre- want to be Jared Goff.
0: Goff. Yeah, I'm telling you, you know, and, you, and you've got that blonde hair like Jared Goff, so, yep. you know, we don't need that. You know, and I heard a co- quarterback coach the other day say to me, yeah, the thing about Jared Goff is they ask him, you know, what's your favorite play He's like, whatever, what, what do you want to run? You know, you don't want to be that guy. Nah. So, you, you know, don't be whatever now. So, yep. you know, well, all the best to Trevor and Alyssa. And, yep. you know, bless Alyssa. That's all I got to say. So, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, that's the way it goes. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> what team was most exposed
1: due to injuries this week? Um, do we say Baltimore? I mean, I I think that's an easy one, right? And now, I I know a couple weeks ago we talked about what team's going to win that division, and I said Baltimore. I, I think you got to have to move off of that now, even with Lamar Jackson, just because they're so decimated by injuries, and now with Marlon Humphrey down, like this is not like an incredible Steelers offense, but. Steelers were able to win that game even though Baltimore came close. They've just been so decimated by injuries. I think this week was kind of the tipping point, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm still in denial, but you know, that's just cuz I love to hate the Steelers, so I, right. I can't I can't go there yet, but I but I see the logic for sure. I just don't want to accept it. Um I'm going to say the Minnesota Vikings. Eric Kendricks and Anthony Barr yeah. were both missing. And when you watch the touchdowns that they they threw in the first half, the, the seam shot to Brock Wright, you know, the play yep. to uh, you know, some of the other plays that they had that were bigger plays in the middle of the field, it came off play action where Nick Veal um and and Troy Donald just died. Yeah. reacted to a lot of stuff. They either jumped gaps that they shouldn't have jumped or and in the run game or they just bit on play action and couldn't get back. And there were a couple plays. There was a there's a crosser to um, Josh Reynolds that I'm watching that play and I'm going. Troy Dye was so far behind yep. that under and he had the underneath aspect of the pro, the coverage to drop. Eric Kendricks, you don't throw that with Eric Kendricks there. Eric Kendricks will cut you off and make an interception on that. So many of his interceptions come on routes where he's the underneath man breaking and he's the best at the game at the linebacker position at doing that. And I don't think they would have gotten away with that or even maybe even looked at it <laughs> if right. Eric Hendricks were in the game. So I think that was the one for me. Um, how much does Tom Brady prevent sacks just on the sheer basis of him knowing where he wants to go with the ball before the snap? Because I, I, I was talking to Will Hewlett. We had him, I had him on the podcast last week. and yeah. He talked about the fact that yeah. You know Brady's the type of guy that, or that was Harmon, the the um, the safety for um, oh Deron Harmon, Daron Harmon, who yeah. said that Brady Brady knows where he's going before you know before the snap, but where and then I think Hewlett kind of reemphasized that earlier in the week on our show, and then talked about Drew Locke as an example of a guy who basically is trying to figure it out after the snap, but pretty good at doing that it's just that you'd like to see him incorporate more of the pre-snap stuff to become a complete player. But I th- started thinking about that or like a Stafford who's probably a much higher functioning Drew Locke, um, right. you know, advanced level on that. But, you know, does Brady prevent sacks because of him being able to do that?
1: I mean, I think it's a big part of it. It's not the full story because, you know, there are times when he he, he has to change his expectations post-snap based on what the defense does at the snap. So then he relies on footwork. Like his first touchdown to Gronk against Atlanta, like he had some pressure that was coming off the edge that he had to respond to. So then you see the feet and the slide, but he knew where he wanted to go with the ball. And I I think that helps him get ahead of it. So then he can then use his footwork to stay ahead of it. I, I think that's the way I'd sort of put it. His mind helps him get ahead of stuff to avoid pressure and things like that. And his feet help him stay ahead of stuff.
0: Nice. So we'll go off the rails a little bit here. What, what was a hard lesson in your life that you had to learn that's made a difference
1: for you? Failure. Um, you know, I mean, it's a cliched thing, but you know, when you go along the way along this journey and things don't go your way, when you, lose a quarterback battle when you are suddenly the third-string quarterback as a senior and you're running scout team you know that that's that's a, a bitter pill to swallow when you get rejected from schools when you get rejected in your personal affairs asking girls out asking boys out whatever and you get rejection that way um failing failing at a career i mean let's be blunt about it i failed as a lawyer that's part of the reason i'm here If I was a good lawyer that could have handled practice in law, I'd probably still be doing that, but I wasn't. But how you respond to that, I I think, shows you the measure of who you are as a person and the structure and support of the people around you, you know, because it's one thing, and we've talked about this a lot. It's one thing for you to be able to respond to failure, but you need those around you to support you during the response. Like, if I didn't have the support of family, friends, wives, children in doing what I do, I'd probably have left this one. Uh, so you need the support of others around you as you respond to failure. But getting back up, responding to failure, handle adversity, handle a nose, all that stuff, rejection. That's the biggest thing I think I've kind of learned along the way, just in life generally and even in, in this industry, because you know, you get rejection in this industry. You you get rejection when you Put together an article you craft something that you've put hours into sometimes days into and you put it out and it's just crickets tumbleweed on the timeline because other people have done it better or other people have done different things and that other thing is the topic of the week and you're five retweets and one like like what man you know that that can sometimes sting too and so you know those moments when you're like forget this i'm not going to do this anymore Say no, like telling yourself no. You've responded to adversity before; you'll do it again.
0: Yeah, that's a that's it's great advice, and you know I think everyone has to learn about rejection. I, I could certainly go into my own stories with that, and that's been a very important lesson for me too, for for sure. And I will just offer this bit of solace to anybody who, who you know, as Mark described his situation with the five retweets and one like type of situation. I found that over the course of time, um, there's usually twenty or thirty more people looking at it who just didn't bother to 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 say anything, but they actually liked it. I get a, and, and then they go into your work and go yeah. deeper, and you know, I so a, it's um, there.
1: I get a very nice email from a mutual friend of ours, Matt, who we play in a dynasty league with um, over the weekend that spoke to that. And and I responded to this person, and I can we can talk about it off air because I don't want to just name somebody. Um, But that email meant the absolute world to me. But part of what they said was, Twitter's not real. You're right, Twitter is not real. There are thousands more people that consume your stuff that might not even see it on Twitter; they see it elsewhere. So you know, if you're out there, you're you know a content creator, you're going through that. Man, I, I put my heart and soul into this pod or this video or this article, and nobody shared it. People are still sharing it. It just might not happen on Twitter.
0: Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, I'd say the one of the hard lessons I had to learn in my life was to say no and to yeah, learn how okay. to yeah. learn how to not be a people pleaser. I was raised I was raised that the mm-hmm. the way that I was raised I had to learn to cope by people pleasing. That was what would get me the least the the path of least resistance in my in my childhood and it allowed me to be able to have some level of freedom of choices and to be able to avoid stress in my home life. I would say that was the best way that I would put it is, and I learned to become an expert people pleaser by the time I was probably 16, 17, 18 years old. Um, Very, very good at that. Um Which I think if people read my work now, they would think I'm a completely different human being, and i <laughs> and I am because as Sigmund Bloom says a lot lately is like you don't seem to care like you don't care what people think. And I actually take that as a compliment now, though I very much always will care what people think. but I've learned hard lessons to understand that it's important for people to that a, not everyone's going to like you and that's a good thing because you have to like yourself. If you, if, if you're trying to get everyone to like you, then you don't like yourself. It's that's the, that's the root truth of that and at its core, because you are not showing people who you really are. And then you're also not having any conviction. And so then you're not going to learn things if you're constantly waffling and trying to just please whatever's going on in that. And no one's ever really gonna get to know you if you don't if you if you don't take a stand about what it is that you want, what you believe in, what you don't want. Yeah. And and so, you know, for me, I had in my twenties, a lot of my twenties was spent figuring out how to say no, how to get angry, how to be able to you know, do all of that appropriately. It wasn't that I had an anger problem in the sense of that I was, I had a violent temper or that I was mean to people. Um, But I was someone that just couldn't get angry at all. And so when I did get angry, it would manifest in like psychosomatic illness. You know, I would have, I'd have strange like symptoms of illness that like, I couldn't get rid of with medication or something else because I was basically burying my anger you know and, and and a lot of my anger came because of sometimes it was something deeper that i had to like figure out how to resolve in my life but it but little things that would make me angry that you know you'd be angry about you know for all of like 30 seconds and then you forget about you know those things would just stay in there too so i'd just be like a you know i'd basically be like flypaper for anger you right. know until it accumulated and it was this big ugly mess Um, so that was a very important lesson for me. And I think that if I hadn't have learned how to do that in my twenties, there's no way I would be able to do what I'm doing today. No way. Um, especially when you like, you know, when you come on a national podcast and go, I think Trey sermon was the best running back I've seen in this class, you know, because one, I wouldn't have been able to make that statement much less a Nick Chubb or anybody else. Um, and two, when that doesn't work out for whatever reasons, you know, I probably wouldn't be able to deal with it. Now it's just like, eh, whatever, you know. Yeah. There, you know, it is what it is. There's reasons for that. I can talk about. There's things I don't know, and we'll see what goes on from here. And it's just part of my day now, as opposed to something else. So th- that right. was a hard lesson. Um, are the Chiefs collectively in a malaise? Because were you on ever on a team that just? seemed like they were in an emotional funk. I know that we deal a lot with facts and figures and techniques right. and things like that, but I like the fact that we can go there about, you know, about this. What, do you think they are?
1: I mean, I don't know if they're like collectively in a malaise. I mean, I, I think they're starting to figure things out, particularly on the defensive side of the ball. I, I think the team that it might be more in that situation might honestly be Buffalo. You know, in, in talking to some people the past week, doing some Buffalo shows, talking to some people like off air and stuff, there's this sense that the fire that they had last year just isn't quite there. And, you know, they've struggled in a lot of close games this year. Obviously, Monday night was a very physical game and, you know, they they struggled. And part of that might be more X's and O's in scheme. You're a base four two five team. And you guys suddenly run that third linebacker out there, you're gonna have struggles. Um, I, I think the Chiefs, particularly the defensive side of the ball, have sort of figured things out. But so I wouldn't say that they're in a malaise. As, as, I as far as me, I think our freshman year down the stretch when it was clear that like look, we were we were gonna finish like, you know, two and six, three and five. Um, you know, and for somebody like me, like I was lucky growing up playing football where you know, in Pop Warner, every year our team won a conference title and was in a position to get picked to go to nationals. Some years we were never picked. Some years we lost in a, a playoff game that, you know, had we won, we might have been picked. And then in high school, look, my freshman year, our team won, you know, state championship. Obviously, I was a freshman. I wasn't part of it, but you were still part of that. And then we were like nine and one, eight and two, seven and three. Like, you know, I had never experienced a losing record on a football team um until my freshman year and when it gets to be a cold gray november in new england and you're coming out to practice to get ready to play williams and you know they're going to beat you 49 nothing and you're running like scout team receiver on on wednesday afternoon to emulate you know williams's best receiver because you're the only guy on the roster that can kind of do that well that isn't a starter on the offense but then Midway through the first quarter, the starting quarterback goes down, and you're suddenly in the game, running the offense, and you're struggling. Like, yeah, I mean, there's a malaise that sets in, but I think for you know teams that have a wooden record in the NFL, I, I don't know if a malaise is the way I describe it. I think it's kind of the process of figuring where you are as a team, as an offense, as a defense, and sort of going from there.
0: Yeah, I think they're I think malaise is probably too strong of a word. I would agree with that. Um, uh, I I think they are fighting through overthinking and examining a lot of things. yeah. And as a result of that, they might be a little tight at times. I see drops from players that I'm just like, that doesn't happen usually. Like Tyreek Hill dropping a lot of passes. Byron Pringle, who may not be a a big name, dropping the ball in situations where you're like, that doesn't normally happen. It just seems like this team is... Prone to making some mistakes that you don't normally see. The seams are showing a little bit. Yeah, I, I'd say I've been on a team. You know, I ran a team in one of my past careers of, of people where I've certainly seen them get into an emotional funk, and that that can happen. And I remember the story. It's like this: is that the 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 project that we were running required a lot of analysis before you dealt with customers but you had to do that analysis within a short period of time and you had a lot of information coming up on your screen before you could to, to read and deal with them so you were dealing with a lot of situational work um, it required a different environment than what Um, our industry was used to doing at the time. Our industry was born, in this call center business, it was born out of sales. So a lot of it was telemarketers doing this. And telemarketers like to keep the energy of the room high. So when I first started doing that and managing a telemarketing room, you would have people up on a board talking and talking. And maybe that's where I, I did okay, learning how to talk in front of people. But you would do that. You would do silly things. So I was like Jim at the office, playing pranks on you know pr- on the other manager on his shift. And we, I'd get all my reps in on the act where we'd like take. They used to paperclip leads. So I would say, okay, we're gonna make one big long paperclip chain out of this bucket, so that when he pulls out this bucket and starts handing people paperclips, that all of them are connected together. So we oh, spent yeah. four hours literally making a paperclip chain while they're on the phone doing all this stuff, things like that. But you would talk and you'd be a little louder and you would keep the energy level high so that people would sound enthusiastic when they're talking on the phone. And that gets, that does keep customers, it does generate interest from customers who actually are on the phone long enough to answer it. You know? Yeah. So they would apply that to this type of environment. That's, like I had a manager who came from that as well. And one day, I, I took a day off, from a, a rare day off from this from this project and work, and I came back the next day, and all my man my floor managers were complaining to me that it, we had a disastrous day because the director of our center came down and thought the place wasn't lively enough and started doing the old school stuff that he had done before. It was kind of like. And I'm making a comparison that no way, I'll put it this way, like a a person who studied from the Vince Lombardi playbook and said, we're going to keep it simple. We're going to basically do two to three things and we're going to have a lot of energy and we're going to have a lot of enthusiasm and passion with what we do. And that's it versus say a Bill Belichick, Josh McDaniels, where there's a lot of stuff going on. We're going to keep it subdued, but we're going to, you know the intensity is going to be there yeah. you're going to be able to fulfill everything i was kind of more out of the mcdaniels playbook he was more out of the lombardi playbook and then i had to go downstairs and interrupt the meeting and yell at my boss and, yeah. and tell him that he's never allowed up there um which i would not <laughs> recommend
1: doing but, right right but
0: i did we knew each other well enough that he you know i knew we we kind of set the expectations that i could go I could go into the general manager's office and yell at him. And that's basically what happened there. So um, what's something you've tried recently that you've never tried before, you know, whether it's book, entertainment, show, food, some whatever experience? What's something uh, that's new you want to share? At our
1: school's fall festival, uh, we had an outdoor food truck, To so the food conversation from earlier, of Gaudian cuisine um, from Africa. And I tried it and it was absolutely incredible um I, I started off with some some ginger wings which were fantastic this is uh cook's tribute k-u-k apostrophe s tribute you can follow them on instagram if you're in the dc maryland area like i would highly recommend it then i had some of their baked chicken it was fantastic and then some of their jollof rice J O i don't know if i'm doing that right Um, uh, but that was also fantastic so Gaudian food from a food truck i I really enjoyed it. Well, we were in the
0: same continent, my friend.
1: Oh boy! Because
0: I I actually ordered peri peri chicken for the first okay, time, yeah. and I have never had peri peri chicken, which is basically they say it's from South Africa, but there's a big Portuguese influence yes. with it too. So it's got this kind of they use a lot of chili pepper. Um, so, it, but it's like a pepper, vinegar, sweet, salty, spicy. Um, mix that's poured over the chicken and it's generally um grilled the chicken yep. is grilled and they did it in holes or half chicken so we got a whole chicken did the peri peri chicken and it was really good i was i was impressed with the flavor it was one of those things that even the next and they, they cooked the chicken well too which was yeah you know when when i can get my wife to to actually enjoy eating a chicken breast yes. you you know that's a, that's a, that's a, an accomplishment. A w. Yeah. So, you know, that, that, that was nice, you know, and it just has, it's got a really nice flavor. It's not too hot either. I mean, I'm sure they no, can make it not. hotter, but it's, it just gives you just the right amount of spice, but it, that sweet, that vinegary sweet salt combination is just a winner.
1: Yes. Nando's Perry Perry is a place around us that I absolutely love. Yeah, I've heard so, of that place. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a relative chain fast food variety, but it's really good. There's a place we like, uh, Sardi's, which is in the DMV area that has Peruvian chicken. I always get their uh, ultimate mixed grill, and it comes with uh, carne asada, a quarter chicken or a half chicken dark meat, um, a skewer of uh, grilled shrimp, mm-hmm. a sausage. It's got like like six different kinds of meat in it. And then their churrasco de pollo, which is their, their like, Oh no, Oroz choncaro or something like that. It's the Peruvian fried rice. I, I know I'm butchering the name, but that's very good. Yeah. That sounds awesome. I got to yeah. say the
0: best chicken I've ever had though. Um, other than the best chicken I've ever had that I haven't made. I'll, and I'm going to say that I, I, I can make chicken pretty well. Yeah. Is, there's a is jerk chicken when I lived in Jamaica. There was a little yeah. roadside place off outside of Montego Bay that was like literally looked like a burnt out gas station of cinder blocks, right? Literally across the street from the ocean. And when I say across the street, imagine your, your neighborhood where most of you probably live in a house, houses or apartments where you have one street. Imagine if you looked across your street and sent a scene your house, you saw the Caribbean Sea. Okay. Yeah. And, and that's where it was. And they literally grinded up the, the scotch bonnet peppers with an with a iron grinder. You know, the guy who had grinded up was wearing gloves about up to his elbows. He had a patch over his eye because he unfortunately got some juice in his eye <sighs> like the last week. Yeah. Um, but the chicken was just absolutely phenomenal. And there's nothing like that with some red stripe and some mm-hmm. festival and and some of that hard dough bread um you know it sounds awesome it's it, if i if i can figure out that i can retire if i can figure out a way to cope with the heat with the weather i would probably that would be a place that i would consider as a retirement place really? because just the food is the food there is just unbelievably good so You know, again, you know, Mark Schofield, he's unbelievably good. We, you know, the RSP, I got to say, it's good. Unbelievably good. good. It's good, man. And I will be coming out with um, a pre-sale for the RSP. I've decided that I'm not going to do a combo um, discount yet this year. This is, we're going to make the second year of the projections. Um, Kind of like this year. I just kind of see whether, A, I'm going to continue to do it in 2020. Um, to, I'm going to do it in 2022, but whether or it's going to continue to be a long-term thing. So I don't want to bundle it yet. Um, and I want to, I want to kind of get it better from an operational perspective for myself in terms of the time period of, that it takes to do it and things like that so that I can really lock it in before I decide to commit fully to it. But so far people seem to really like it and have been happy with the product. So I'm proud to announce that we'll be doing it again. That'll be available for, um, Twenty-four ninety-five, and so if you just want the pure answers to the test, twenty-four ninety-five. If you actually want to read the study guide and learn about <coughs> the product, which most of you seem to do, um, then you know, still going to be available for twenty-one ninety-five, most likely. I may do a price change. I've I've got it. I've got a, about a week or two to decide. I know that my buddy Christopher Brown, who's listening to this, is like. Um, Stop giving it and away. And stop telling me to stop giving it away. Yeah. So um, that may that very well may happen. Um, but again, you're still going to get a great deal out of it, even if I do, uh, you know, do a price change with it. Um, you can find it all at Matt Thanks again, guys. You guys have a terrific week.